This week on the show, we've got Holly Overton, whose new book is called Baby Doll, and she's also a writer for Shadowhunters and also wrote for The Client List. You may have noticed this week and last week that I've been doing the intros and the outros by myself, which is because Jeff has accepted a brand new job opportunity out in the Bay Area and is off chasing dreams and helping people register to vote. But anyways, it's a very exciting opportunity. We're very happy for him. Let's get into it with Holly. So welcome, Holly. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So, uh, you know, I, right off the bat, I wanted to kind of have you give us a little bit of a capsule version of, of your story, you know, where you're from, uh, how you got to where you are now. Um, you can start at any point you want, but uh, I know a lot of our readers um, know your work, but don't necessarily know you. A lot of our listeners. Yes. Well, um, so I'm originally from a small town in Texas uh, called Kingsville um, on the Gulf Coast. Um, but I actually was born in Chicago, Illinois, with my uh, along with my identical twin sister, Heather. And um, when we were six days old, we were adopted. And um, when our parents, our adoptive parents, divorced, we moved back to their home state. And um, I grew up in this small, lovely um, Texas town. Um, if you've seen Friday Night Lights, that's very much what my town is like. <laughs> I'm so uh, jealous. <laughs> well, I mean, it's everybody's prettier and the problems seem more interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> there there were say. no no random murders from your, your classmates and your peers? <laughs> no, not, no. Fortunately, we didn't have too much of that. Just lots of football drama. Yeah. Um, and um, but I grew up doing um, theater and journalism. And I, my sister and I both decided at a very young age that we wanted to be actresses. And so my mother was kind enough or crazy enough to encourage that, um, that dream. And so my sister and I moved to New York city at 19 to pursue our acting careers. And, um, my sister, Heather, uh, our first day of theater school said, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and I said, we just spent $10,000. Um, you better suck it up. And, um, and so we studied acting at th there. And then, um, once I finished there, I went to Hunter College and I was sort of living the bartending, auditioning, but probably more bartending life in New York City um, after school. And my mom was like, you should move to L.A. And I was like, OK. <laughs> and she said she'd uh, pay my rent for six months and buy me a car. And um, six months turned into nine months. And um, but kind of found my way and I kept auditioning. Um, but then I started writing and transitioned into screenwriting. And um, I'd always been writing in journals and short stories in New York. And um, I entered a contest and found a mentor, um, a writer by the name of Stephen Susco. And he really encouraged me as a writer. And he was the one who said, you know, I really think TV might be a good fit for you. And so that's how I um, sort of decided like, oh, right, people write television. I, I, you know, they don't teach you that as a job um, opportunity in, in a small town in Texas. And so, yeah, so I, I ended up taking a TV writing class and I wrote a spec script for Friday Night Lights, uh, which was one of my favorite shows. And that script got me into the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop. And um, which is, I don't know if your listeners know, but it's a... Uh, workshop um sponsored by warner brothers it's a free workshop um a couple like not my year 900 people applied and they pick nine um but they train you and teach you tv writing and then they help you get a job and out of that i landed my first job which was writing for the uh, television show cold case so can you talk to us about your first professional experience as a tv writer because it's kind of a it, it's a little bit of a closed group in that it's very difficult to get into. I mean, I can't even imagine the numbers of people who apply to TV jobs, let alone get them, and how they compare to the Warner Brothers program. But one thing I feel like we don't often hear a lot about is that process of getting into it in the first place. What was it like to get there on your first day on Cold Case? Well, um, it was really overwhelming. <laughs> I, it was actually interesting because so many people that I know now um, have really, you know, had like, you know, they've been in writer's rooms as assistants or they've been, you know, they've worked for showrunners or they, you know, they really understand kind of what the job entails. And 
I was a little wide eyed and a little green. And so it was very intimidating just walking into a room with all these really smart people who kind of know the lay of the land. So I was pretty quiet on my first show, um, trying to learn how it was. Um, but it was very exciting. You know, you're just, you're just sitting in a room all day talking about stories and telling stories and you're like, wow, I'm really getting paid for this. Like then, (laughs) you know, and then you're like, they're like, what do you want for lunch? And you know, you have a kitchen stocked with food and you're like, and, and then you're writing stuff that people are going to see on TV. So, um, but it also is, you know, it's, it's, it's just getting used to like telling stories in a group and kind of learning how to do that and learning, you know, to know when to speak and when not to speak and to kind of like understand how each individual show works. Um, Cold Case was a very, it was a character driven procedural, but it was very procedural. And so it was, it, it was an interesting lesson for me. And I think I learned a lot, especially now that I'm writing crime stuff of how to, um, of how to tell these stories in a way that, um, is, you know, like what a crime story is and all the plot stuff. So it was learning, having that be my first show was, was a, was a great training ground for the stuff that I'm writing now, especially in novels. Um, Oh, were you going to say something? So when you're writing a procedural like cold case, uh, how, how did you translate that experience to approaching your first novel, baby doll? I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? Oh, uh, so when you the lessons that you learned from writing uh, the procedural, how did you take that and translate it into uh, your first novel? I think. Well, I think like a lot of the lessons that I learned on Cold Case and then on subsequent shows is, uh, for me, really it comes from character, but also just knowing sort of uh, doing the research. Um, Cold Case was, you know, it was a very research-driven show as far as like what the you know what the procedure is and you know, what the crime, you know, how the crime elements unfold and all of that. So for me, it was very important to do the research. So I ended up talking to um, several police officers. I consulted with um, an agent from the FBI who um, gave me a lot of helpful information. I read a lot about victims of domestic abuse and um, sexual assaults. And because I really wanted, even though I felt like it's not a traditional police procedural um, baby doll, my novel is not, um, it definitely has elements of that. And I wanted that to ring as true as possible. So what, what is baby doll about? So baby doll is about um, a young girl, Lily, um, who's an identical twin. And at 16 years old, she goes missing. And the book begins eight years later when she manages to escape from where she's been held along with her daughter, uh, her six-year-old daughter, Skye, and she returns home and she reunites with her mother and her sister. Um, But Baby Doll is kind of what happens next. It's the aftermath of the kidnapping. Um, And so we delve into what happened to her, how her family and, you know, has, has been affected by this, but how they're affected by her coming home, how everyone's changed um, and how the kidnapper reacts and sort of, the surprise of who it is and um, how he's gotten away with this crime. So I always say it's an aftermath story, but really to me, for me, um, because I'm an identical twin, uh, it really was about this relationship between these sisters and sort of what brought them together. So I want to get back into the the twin aspect of this in a little bit, but you mentioned that you started the book, um, you know, kind of at, at the point that a lot of people would look at as the end of the story. Um, you know, she had found her freedom and she's trying to deal with, you know, the repercussions of what happened to her. Um, so, you know, why did you decide to start at that point? I think deciding, just deciding to start in the aftermath, you mean, as opposed to like starting, mm-hmm. as, you know, like when she was captivity. taken or something. Uh, you know, I, I really, I felt like, you know, there's obviously been some great books that deal with the subject matter and, you know, a lot of, a lot of stories, you know, when we when we watch the news about a young woman who's been held captive, you tend to kind of focus on sort of the more tawdry details. But every time I watch these stories, I wanted to know, like, well, what happens when they go home? What happens when the media isn't there and you're just like, you know, reunited with this person who's been gone for so long and all these horrible things that they've been through, but also all the things you've been through, you know, the family members went through because, you know, they dealt with the same kind of thing. So it was really important for me to kind of focus on that. And I just felt like I wanted, I wanted to tell that story and see, is there a way to tell that story where it's, it's still exciting, where it's not just like, 
is she going to escape or sort of what horrors lie in those walls with what happened. And I didn't really want to write some of that. I didn't really want to write because it felt a little too tawdry. Um, and I felt like, you know, the reader could sort of, you know, fill in the blanks of what had happened once they, once they escaped. So from the very start, the first, the first thing I ever wrote was the first chapter of the book. And that first chapter has changed very little from, from what I wrote two years ago. I I actually think you did a, a, large service to the reader by not really delving into the details of what happened during Lily's captivity because, you know, it just left so much to the imagination. Um, and you know, everybody has their own version of what, what that kind of nightmare would look like. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I I thought that you did, you know, a really, really great job there. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I wonder if, uh, I wonder what the process was like for you with your procedural background. Uh, a lot of the authors we talked to mentioned that they let the characters drive the story, but I wonder if your approach to Baby Doll was any different. Was the temptation there to, to, to sort of write around the skeleton of the plot that you had conceptualized, or was it mostly character-driven? I wish I could say that I had some sort of grand master plan when I began writing it, um, because I always used to hate when people would say, I just started, a novelist would say, I just started writing and the story found itself. Uh, but that was pretty much just how it was. I just started writing and the story found itself. I think I, I had the idea of these twin sisters and, and what their, you know, what their story was and their journey. And, um, but I didn't really know where it was, where it was going or what the ending was. And so I just kind of kept writing. Um, and then when I got to about uh, page 100, 120, um, I was sort of like, huh, I wonder what this, where I'm going with this. And then I had to go back and outline and I went and outlined the last half just so I would have very loosely outlined it just so I would have some understanding of where I was going. Um, but really I did let the characters drive the story. Um, and it was interesting because the, um, the antagonist, Rick Hansen, the, the, who you find, you know, when you find out who he is, um, he kind of came about later in the process even, because uh, I just sort of felt like you were sort of missing the tension that he provided. Uh, but I was a little reluctant to even write him because I found him kind of awful. <laughs> and I was like, this character is so terrible. Like, am I really going to be inside this person's head? And I sort of felt really resistant to that. But in the end, I just was like, nope, he, he made, he, I think he made the book because he was sort of allowed us to see, I mean, I love getting inside someone's head and sort of understanding or trying to understand what makes someone like that tick. Uh, but also being able to see how awful he was sort of reflected the survivor spirit of the other characters. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, you just hit on something that I think is super interesting because that's one thing, uh, as you know, a reader and a consumer of interviews with authors, we never really get to hear the story of authors going back and making changes once they've gotten to a place in the story where more things need to happen. So to hear you describe Rick as coming about later on in the story is super interesting. Was there anything else like that that popped up along the way as you're following these characters through the journey that you had to go back and change or adjust? Uh, yeah. Well, I also had this, um, I also had a fifth character. Uh, the book is told through five, four POVs and I had a fifth POV, which was actually the sheriff in the story. Um, and I really liked him and I thought he added like, you know, I, I liked writing him and I thought he was, you know, interesting and compassionate. Um, but the more I wrote, the more I realized that he didn't really like if we removed him, he didn't really like he didn't change the story in any big way. And um, if anything, he kind of slowed it down. And um, and then I also had uh, the girl's mother, uh, the twins, mother Eve had remarried Um and but she still had this relationship with the sheriff and it ended up just feeling like I realized like later when someone I think it was my agent that pointed it out when she read it. She was like, I don't know if you need this character because you basically just came into the room, delivered information and left. So um, <laughs> it meant I was like, oh, you're right. If, and I like went through and removed him from every scene and I was like, the story didn't change at all. So um, it really was about making a lot of cuts and sort of figuring out how to tighten up the novel um, which was great because then, you know, when I got my editor's notes, their notes were really just about expanding things. Mm. And, uh, and so I think it, but you know, it's always hard when you're like, you know, you're just like cutting chat, you know, all, you know, like 40 pages of character, uh, is always slightly painful. That's mm -hmm. so interesting. I never would have guessed that Tommy was the fifth character. 
I know. Well, he didn't really, he, yeah, I know. It was so funny when I, like, after I, I cut him out, I was like, he was so unnecessary. But I think that's the kind of the fun though of writing a novel, especially I'm not as strict and when I'm working on fiction as I am in TV, where you really do need an outline and you need to know where you're going. There is some fun to be had about like just kind of finding things. And I think, you know, the good is that you find a character like Rick and you discover that. And the bad is that sometimes you write stuff that, you know, doesn't make it into the final draft of the, of the, of the manuscript. So, you know, I, I, I know a little bit of your backstory, which we'll get into later. Um, and, and you hit on this in a piece that you wrote for the guardian, but each of the characters that you, each of the narrator narrators in the book, um, there are four different points of views and or POVs and um you know it's not lost to me that each of them kind of to an extent resembles a different member of your family yes that's true <laughs> so was that intentional and and if so you know why you know it's funny because I I do sort of it's funny actually that wasn't intentional and until you said it I don't think I even realized that which is kind of weird because I always think about how um you know, Abby, the twin is my sister and Lily is more me and the mom is, is, you know, Eve. And I guess it, it seems interesting. I mean, I, I like, I think my father was, you know, a much better man than, than Rick Hansen. Um, but yeah, I, I guess there was something sort of instinctual that kind of came up when I started writing this. And I think, you know, um, just, I've always liked, I mean, I've written a lot of, you know, nonfiction and I've written a lot of stuff about my family um, and so I guess somehow that just came, came out and it's interesting because even in my next novel, like I find myself, I'm like, Oh, maybe that's just what you do as a writer. You just work through all your stuff through your characters. Cause there's definitely elements of my mother in my next book and my father and myself. So I think there's something interesting. I think, you know, just having that personal connection to it, um, helps me write it. Um, I wonder if as a TV writer you've had any uh, contact with Dan Harmon's theories on uh, screenwriting and writing in general. No, I have not. Uh, he describes the process of writing as a number of ways, but in particular dealing with all of the underlying shit <laughs> that you're carrying, um, all the mental <laughs> issues. So I thought that might be particularly relevant. I think it's very true. I always, I always say that I'm very glad that I discovered writing because it's been my therapy. Um, and it's sort of, it's definitely helped me work things out. People used to say it when they'd find out about my crazy childhood, you seem so well adjusted. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad I seen that way, but I definitely think my, my work has allowed me to kind of, you know, deal with all the things that you have to deal with. So one of the reasons that Kyle and I started this podcast and why we call it writers who don't write is because, you know, we kept on running into this wall where we would be writing, you know, these very personal stories about things, whether they were fiction or not, that, that somehow stemmed from, you know, experiences with people in our own lives. Um, and it's really difficult to put that out there because, you know, not the least of, of what you have to worry about is what other people are going to think about, you know, these stories that you're writing. So, you know, have you run into anyone, you know, coming up to you and asking you, um, you know, if this is like a thinly veiled story of your life or um, which obviously it's a, you know, composite and fictionalized account. Um, but also, you know, you write a lot of stuff about your feelings um, with with, well, Lily's twin sister, Abby, in the book. But, you know, you, you, you said in a story in the past that, um, you know, your sister saw herself in there. Um, and was that tough for you to deal with at all? Or, or did she kind of was there any backlash to that? No, I mean, it's like, it was so funny because, she, you know, when she, she had, she was obviously the one that encouraged me to keep writing it and she read every single chapter and every single draft and, um, she'd be like, oh, this doesn't work. And, um, she's probably, you know, my biggest fan and toughest critic. And, and, but it was only when we had the final, when it was, the book was finally going to print that she was like, oh my goodness, like I'm this character. Um, I think she found it more amusing than anything because, you know, the character Abby, like some people are like, you know, some readers have said like, oh, she was so harsh. I hated her. Um, she was like, you know, she was just, she was a very tough character. And I think, you know, obviously it's a heightened version of who I see my sister as, but she's my favorite character because I think like she had to develop this tough harshness to survive losing the person most important to her. Um, and I've been fortunate that, um, luckily no one I've like, you know, prototyped my, 
my book, my, my baby doll on has said anything. I, I, I joke once jokingly said my husband's going to kill me for saying this, but I once jokingly said that like, there's a bit of Rick Hansen. There's a bit of him and Rick Hansen. <laughs> he's like, he, he stopped telling people that. Um, oh my God, but I was yeah. like, no, so they're he, charming. Like, so he loves, know, he loves Kerouac and all the beats. Yes, <laughs> exactly. All the music stuff. Yeah. And he's, um, but he's, you know, he's like, I'm like, you're the charming version, you know, like the, the darkness is not you, but, um, I haven't had, I have been asked a lot if it's, you know, based on, based on personal, um, personal situations, but I haven't yet been asked if, uh, I haven't had anybody upset about it. Um, my next book, I, I, am basing a, one of the characters a bit on my mother and I'm a little nervous about her. <laughs> uh, that is, that's probably the first time I'm like, I wonder if she'll know this is her. Cause everybody who's read it is like, this is her mother, isn't it? Um, and I'm like, it is, it is, yeah, it's, uh, it's all done with love. Um, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm sure at one, some point I'll get into trouble, but I haven't yet. I, I have a twin brother as well. Um, my twin is fraternal, so it's a much different kind of, of relationship. Is um, it though, as someone who is not a twin, is there, um, forgive me if I'm hitting on something that is not talked about in twin circles, but is there a fundamental difference? And I would ask that from both sides. Like, is there some fraternal versus identical twin rivalry that I don't know about? I wouldn't call it a rivalry and, and maybe... I, I, I feel like, well, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for you. Um, but I think with identical twins, um, I think it's because you look so alike and there's this, I don't know, there's just this strange emotional connection that I always feel with my sister. And like one time she, I had a, I had a meeting for something and I was really nervous and she was like, she just texted me going, when is that meeting? Cause I can like feel your nerves from across, <laughs> across town. That's so She's crazy. Like, I just want it to be over already so you can like, so I can like get on with my day. <laughs> and I think that that's like, I think that's, that's, we feel each other's mood, you know, like, you know, not in like the, like, I know she's in danger kind of thing, but just like, just being so sensitive to that. Um, and also just this closeness that I think is sometimes great, but also slightly dysfunctional. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, my, my twin brother is my best friend, but at the same time, I, I don't know if I've ever had, you know, that kind of emotional reaction. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure there might be examples of similar situations, but, um, you know, I dated an identical twin, uh, at one point in my life and, you know, she, it, it, you, you mentioned this in another piece that you wrote, but she, you know, would talk to her twin 10, 20 times a day via text and G chat and on the phone. And, um, you know, it, you're always, you're, it's a different kind of best friend, you know, and maybe that's just the way that, you know, you grew up with your sister and she grew up with her sister, but, um, you know, I can go a day or two without talking to my twin and, you know, it's not lost, you know, we're still best friends and everything, but it's an entirely different kind of relationship, I think. And I, I think biologically that might be because of the whole two egg, one egg thing. Um, yeah. No, I agree. No, it's funny too, though, because I have, um, I have, I was good friends with, um, twins in New York who ran a casting agency for twins. And so I, my sister and oh my I've God. met a lot of twins and we have identical twin friends and they're, they're very, like, until I met, like, our friends, I was like, oh, we're not weird. Like, this is, like, they do live together, you know, like, well into their 20s. And um, they do talk on the phone, you know, every single day. And uh, which my sister and I talk on the phone every single day. Um, and, and it's not weird, which, yeah. you know, I think it's just that connection. That's such a deep connection. I, I have a, a set of twin friends um, who are identical who... You know, one of them is married and they both live together still with the husband. And, um, you know, they're actually <laughs> they're, they're writing a book. They're co-authoring a book together now and they worked in the same industry their whole lives. And um, I mean, it's a different kind of connection and bond. Um, it's so funny, though, because I love that you said that because my sister lived with me until like she lived with me like she lived with us probably right because I'm, I'm married and she's not and shortly after we got married she's like all right I'm moving out I just I can't take the I can't take the like questions of you're still living with your sister and her <laughs> husband and I was like they're not living our lives like you yeah. don't have to go and she was like no I'm I'm moving out it's done <laughs> yeah. I mean that I I always found that fraternal twins are um you know in in my experience are much more like brothers than they are like you know twins as I would look at an identical twin. Again, my brother is my best friend and, you know, I love him and um, we're very close, but I mean, I would never say that we're that close. I wonder if you're about to upset a very large subset of the twin population with that. 
Yeah. I mean, hey, maybe, maybe. boycotting your 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 show. It's funny. I I have more twin friends right now than ever before. I think I you know regularly hang out with five or six sets of twins, and uh-huh. um, yeah, and you know it's so funny to see the the difference because, um, you know there really is a huge uh, difference between identical and fraternal twins that, um, you know I I I and I will say when I started reading your book and I didn't know that it was about twins until I got you know five ten pages in. And uh, that made me, you know, I couldn't put the thing down. It was amazing. Um, and I mean, I know you wrote it to be like kind of a compulsive read, um, but you did a very good job. And, and that kind of connection, you know, doesn't really exist in, uh, you know, Girl on the Train or um, right. or Gone Girl or something. So. Well, it's so good to hear. And I love when people say, well, you wrote it to be a compulsive. And I was like, I'm glad to hear that. Because that's <laughs> plan. You can never plan for that. Yeah. Um, so it's a, a great compliment. Well, let's talk about the 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 pace of the novel that makes it compulsive because there is it, it is the type of book that once you pick it up, it's hard to put down because you're always wondering what's going to happen next. Um how do you approach the chapter breaks and the switches in perspective that happen throughout the book to maintain that pace? Like is there a strategy that you employed or was it all just readers? Again, it just makes me, I just really wish I could say like, wow, it was just my training. Just I do, do think no that my TV experience like um, really sort of influenced that, you know, uh, kind of just thinking about like I worked with um, when I started writing uh, Baby Doll, I was like, I don't even, I had 50 pages. I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Um, and I ended up taking a class at UCLA Extension, um, which I'm a big fan of their classes. And um, I met the, my teacher was a novelist, Eduardo Santiago, and he's a wonderful man. And I've worked with him and he's just, uh, he's just, he was so encouraging and, you know, really was like, I think there's something really special here. Um, but when I first started writing, he'd read a, he read a couple chapters and he was like, you know, like you gotta just like, you know, at the end of a chapter, you just really have to like connect and, you know, you have to make sure that a reader wants to turn the page, right? Because it's so easy for someone to just want to put a book down. And, and I was like, the TV writer in me was like, that's an act out. <laughs> that's like, so I sort of, when I would get to the end of a chapter, I sort of approached it in the same way that I would do if I was breaking an episode of television, which is like, what's that moment that's going to make an audience member want to come back from, you know, the commercial break. No, that's, gonna that's different than back? a cliffhanger, right? Yeah, I mean it's definitely a cliffhanger. That's exactly. Oh, that's that's what it is. Okay. Yeah, the, and that sorry, an act out is like yeah, the cliffhanger. Um, you know, next, you know, I'm gonna come back from the commercial and I'm gonna see what's gonna happen. So I sort of treated um, my, you know, the ends of chapters, um, and I didn't really have as far as like how I sort of structured who's, you know, the next chapter, whose point of view it was gonna be. I I really just sort of found it in the writing who, who I wanted to hear from. Um, I did kind of struggle at some point because I, you know, there's moments where you wanted to go back and sort of relive a moment that was kind of, you know, that happened um, with one character, but you couldn't because you had to keep moving forward. So that was definitely something I had to I had to work on in the edits because it would be like, oh wait, no, the next chapter starts, you know, ten minutes later, and you can't go back in time and experience this moment. So mm-hmm. it was about finding that momentum, but. Yeah, I was just really, I guess, really just letting the characters guide it and sort of seeing which sto- which characters um, sort of made the most sense and, and to keep the, kind of the urgency of it all going. Were, were there other points that you saw like a really stark difference between screenwriting and writing this book? Um, yes, I did. Well, and again, uh, I have to credit Eduardo for, you know, really helping. I, you know, I'd, I'd studied a lot of screenwriting, but this was my first attempt at obviously writing a novel. And, you know, he was, he was the one who was like, you know, when you're writing, um, and I think I'm getting better and better at this, but when you're writing, uh, you know, a screenplay, you can say a character is devastated and an actress is going to fill in all those blanks or an actor is going to fill in all those blanks and they're going to show us what devastated looks like. But as a novelist, you have to paint that picture, you know, what, what are they feeling? What are, you know, what does it look like? What is, you know, like all of the senses that are activated in that. So it's something that I think I'm, I think that's something that I'm still hoping to learn and grow at as I continue writing novels, because I think it, it, it really, you know, gives the reader more. So that was something that I, that I, I kept that was definitely different from writing, um, fiction and TV, but there's something really nice about having more time to just sort of like 
talk about the character's feelings and be mm-hmm. inside a character's head that I really loved when I was writing Baby Doll. I think as, as having written screenplays and, and TV specs for a while, uh, you know, sort of not having as many of the rules and, you know, constraints was really fun. Now, in, in a, a weird twist, you actually have experience going the other way, where you took uh, Cassandra Clare's The Mortal Instruments and adapted it for the screen with Shadowhunters, um, which is that CW? Uh, it's actually Freeform, uh, formerly ABC Family. Got it. Okay, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll actually cut that part. But um, <laughs> So you, you adapted uh, Cassandra Clare's The Mortal Instruments series for the screen uh, with Shadowhunters. So what was that experience like? You know, at any point were you worried about, you know, offending uh, Cassie Clare? Um, you know, did you want, did you worry about upsetting the readers because she has such a big fan base? Uh, you know, did you work directly with her? Uh, well, our um, our creator and executive producer, um, Ed Dector, uh, adapted the show, and and um, and I'm one of the writers uh, on it. And uh, it was, you know, it had such a huge, it has such a huge following. Um, you know, 35 million copies sold, and very very dedicated fans. So I think we were all very excited, but also you know very respectful of the source material that we were adapting. And I think our goal was first season and in second season was just to maintain the characters that people loved. And, you know, I think some at first some of the fans were like, oh, they're changing things, and, you know, this isn't the way it is in the books. Um, but what we really want to do, and I think we continue to do, is, you know, deliver something that's exciting and new and surprising for, the, you know, the book fans, um, and also, you know, for new for new viewers. And I, so that, I think that's what we continue to do. And Cassie's been very supportive, and, you know, we just have a great cast, and, and what I think, you know, you, you don't, you, you, she isn't able to do in the book because the show is mostly through the main character, Clary's, you know, POV um, on TV. We're able to kind of, you know, show all of the characters and sort of give them all, you know, kind of take take the audience into through the world in their eyes. Um, so it doesn't just, it's not just from this one character. So I think that was the exciting part about being able to adapt it for TV. So what will you carry forward with you from this experience of writing your first novel into the second series of Mortal Instruments that maybe wasn't there for the first season? I mean, I think once, you know, like, I I feel like just, I feel like, you know, everything you write, it's sort of, you have a better understanding of story, you have a better understanding of, um, you know, structure and character. Uh, I think, you know, as a novelist now, having finished my first novel, um, I have such an appreciation even more so uh, for just the massive world building that she was able to, that Cassie Claire was able to create um, and that we're able to continue on screen. Um, and I just think that, I mean, I think my uh, TV writing experience has helped me in my novel writing experience with meeting deadlines and, you know, really, you know, delivering, you know, finishing, finishing a novel. Um, I mean, I think all of, you know, all my, all my TV experience and, um, juggling all of that. So, um, yeah. And just, you know, being able to tell, being able to, you know, obviously as a writer, you just, you want to be able to tell stories. And so I feel like I'm really lucky that I get to work on a show like this, um, and bring these characters to life. Cause it's definitely different than, than other stuff that I'd written, um, and then obviously getting to write books as well. I'm so curious what you think of the publishing world as opposed to the film and TV world. Well, it's funny because I've had such a Cinderella experience. I, I feel, I feel like when I talk about it, some novelists are like, Oh, we hate her. Um, <laughs> because I've, I've had, a, I've been very fortunate to have had a great experience in the publishing world. Um, TV has been like, you know, like, not as it's been an up and down battle at times. Um, and so, you know, I can't, obviously I'm sure, you know, I'm sure in every career there's ups and downs, but it was a very, um, I had a great experience working with, um, Hachette and, you know, um, and then here in the, in the States and then, um, with Random House in the UK, uh, who published overseas, and it, I just, I, I couldn't, I can't say enough about how great they've been and how supportive and, you know, everybody's always like, nobody ever publishes their first book. And you're like, no, I know, I, I know. <laughs> um, and I just like to remind people when they're like, it seems so easy. And I want to be like, 
you know how many time, how many years I was out of work before I sold this book? Um, so I, I, I definitely went through several um, times in my TV career where I've been out of work and struggling to get that next job. And and that was really the reason I wrote Baby Doll is because I couldn't get hired on a new TV show. And I just wanted to write something again to remind myself of why I loved writing. How does it feel? Because, I mean, you have sold this book in, what, 13 countries? I think it's 11 now. <laughs> Even so. I mean, double digits is remarkable no matter you know what kind of book it is. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're what the book world would consider a commercial success, but at the same time, you know, you're used to reaching millions of people with your TV writing. Um, so is there, you know, any kind of difference in, in the feeling of like the results there? Well, I definitely think, um, I mean, obviously, you know, you know how fortunate you are when you're on a TV show because it's, it's something that, you know, so many people would love to do. And so I'm, I'm always grateful for that, but I think there's something that's like even more satisfying as a novelist because it really is just, it's just you, you know, it's just your creation. It's, it's all comes from you, whether that's good or that's bad. Um, and so there is a sense of, of pride and satisfaction and really because, you know, I never set out to sell it. Um, I, it wasn't like, I'm going to write this book and sell it in 11 countries. I mean, I knew nothing about, you know, publishing. And, and when I finished the manuscript, I, talked to my agents and, and my manager and I said, Hey guys, I wrote a book. <laughs> and they were like, wait, what? <laughs> they had no idea. Um, I just kept it this like secret thing that I worked on while I was trying to interview for TV jobs. And so they were like, uh, okay, we'll give it to an agent here, I guess. Has the book been optioned uh, for film? Um, we're, um, I've written the script for it. I adapted it. Oh wow. Um, and now we're just kind of waiting to see, you know, I think to see if, you know, they want to see how does the book do and sort of to see if there's if there's an appetite for it. But the script is written. And um, and that was that was actually the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, I think uh, taking my own book and adapting it. And, being, and I was like, at one point I was struggling and I said to my manager, like, I don't know. And she's like, what's wrong? Like, you know, the story, you wrote the story. That's half the battle. Why is this so hard? And I was like, I don't know. It's just like, letting go of certain things and, and, and trying to find, you know, trying to find, you know, there's just so much ground you cover in a novel and, and how to condense that into 110 pages, 120 pages was definitely a challenge. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that process of how you went about cutting it down? And I mean, obviously without giving too much away about yeah. the changes that you made. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, it was funny because there's, there's, you know, a lot because of this, you know, separate characters, um, you know, this doesn't give anything away, but in the, in the feature, the mother's story and the sheriff's story are, you know, very minimal. It just, it just ended up being that they just, it wasn't the most interesting part about the, about the novel. Um, and you know, I mean, and it just, as far as time, you wanted that time to explore, you know, Rick Hansen and to explore the twins relationship. So it was really about figuring out how to condense that. And, and then I think, you know, just maintaining the pace and kind of creating that thriller element. Um, the hardest thing I think for me was the, um, you know, kidnapper Rick Hansen, you're in his head for the book. And it's really interesting because you really get to like understand him and, you know, you really, he's just so awful. But in the man, you know, in the in TV, I mean, in film, it's hard. You don't get to you can't like, you know, you don't get to hear all of those like horrible things he says or sort of his. So it was about finding a way to show that cinematically without using something like voiceover or, you know, flashbacks. How did you uh, do that? How did I? Yeah. Can you I, I don't know if you can talk about that, but I'm so curious because in the book, Rick Hansen, uh, you know, says some really, really evil stuff. And you you like, you know, get inside of his head and, you know. It's really the only way you find out how evil yeah. he truly is. I mean, is. He, he, he acts like a regular guy, but then in his head, he's, you know, constantly insulting everybody and, you know, talking about how dumb he thinks they are and how they right. can't, like how it's not possible that they can't see past him and all this stuff. And so how do you show that? I mean, it's more of like in the, in the feature, it's more visual as far as like a smile, a look, kind of the, 
um, I, there's a little bit more of an amping up of his relationship with one of the guards and the, in the, that's, you know, that plays a part in the book, but you see a little bit more of it in the, in the movie that I think is important. Um, and so, and I think it's, you know, obviously there's a scene, there's one scene in particular where I think you sort of really get in his head without giving too much away. Um, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to continue because, you know, you probably are, <laughs> Uh, giving away some plot points or, or something, but do you think that your experience as an actress has helped with this transition in, in your writing style? Oh, well, I definitely think my acting training, which fortunately, um, cause I did, I spent long enough studying, uh, has been helpful. <laughs> I think, you know, in, in TV, obviously, you know, writing dialogue and writing all of that and sort of, you know, understanding actors and performance has been very helpful and I think even even just in the way that I tell stories um, or stories that I liked to watch and read, um, my training informed that. And um, so I always say and also I think it's so funny because I, I was I was saying the other day, I'm like, I really wished I'd figured out earlier on how much anxiety acting actually caused me because <laughs> it was caused me a lot of anxiety. Um, and I think in, in a way that writing never did. Um, and so I think that that's something that I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for though. And I, and I'm grateful that I kept, you know, I pursued it and I'll always say to people like, I just wasn't good enough. And they'll be like, no, it's just competitive. And I'm like, no, I really wasn't good enough. And I think once you've been around great actors and you've been around people who just kind of where that comes as easily to them as writing comes to me, you kind of figured out your path. And, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm so, I, I think what I learned as an actress with like, you know, character development and, you know, stakes and a character's wants and all of that informs everything I write now. I can absolutely see that. So we usually ask people on this show because we know, you know, how difficult it is to tell a lot of the stories that people, um, you know, kind of feel like they want to tell and you um have a very interesting background because most of what you've written if not all of it has been fiction um so what what are some of the stories that you've struggled to tell in the past well I definitely think that I wanted to tell the story of my father um he was in a crime gang in the 1960s called the Overton gang um and, you know, lived this sort of outlaw life with his brother's drugs and guns. And he spent time in prison for manslaughter. And it was something that I didn't really find out until I was much older, um, until after he passed away when I was not that much older, but in my early 20s. And he um, and it's something that I've written a lot about. And I've like pitched, ideas, you know, I've gone on meetings and I've, I've talked a lot about it. But it's just one of those stories that I can't quite tell, figure out how to tell it in a way that I think would be different or unique. Um, I think a lot of writers, when they first start out, they write their very personal kind of stories. Um, and then they sort of, you know, branch out and sort of, you know, carry that with them. So I, I still, I still one day I'm like, you know, maybe when I'm 50, um, or 60, that'll be the story that I want to tell. But, um, and maybe you just need more distance from it to find the kind of the, the best way. Do I want it to be a book? Do I want it to be a TV show? Kind of how do I see that come to life and sort of what I want to say if I were to tell that story. The Overton gang, I know uh, they did some really, really bad things, but it sounds so innocuous. Like I would, like you could tell me the Overton gang delivers milk uh, <laughs> to, to elderly <laughs> folks and I would believe you. What's, what's interesting too is when I started doing my research and, um, and there's been like, there was a book written, um, about, about them. And, um, but what's interesting is they did these horrible things, like some really horrible things. Um, but, but they were kind of written about almost as a joke. And there was an article I found in my research and it was called disorganized crime. And it was like about like how, like, you know, not great criminals they were because they got caught a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and so I always thought, well, maybe there's like a more comedic version of like, you know, what the, what the Overton gang is. Um, but then you, you start to read more and you're like, huh, these are pretty bad guys. Like they were, you know, they were yeah, beating people up and <laughs> killing people and, you know, selling drugs. And so, um, but yeah, they do, they do sound kind of innocuous, but it's interesting too, because because I didn't know 
that my father was part of this or that this was like a part of my family or my life growing up. Um, once I found out it kind of made sense who my father was and sort of the things that he'd done as a, as a, as a parent growing up that, that I was like, Oh, okay. That all makes sense now. Um, and I think that's like the best thing when you find out the answer to that, a question like that, like why, why is someone the way they are? And when I found out about the Overton gang, that was my answer. Now you've, you've kind of told this story in the form of a personal essay. Um, you know, are you trying to, or thinking about in the future telling this, you know, from a different perspective, maybe a fictionalized account, maybe, you know, um, going deeper into the, the tale. Yeah. And definitely like, I love the dynamic, um, you know, I haven't written about this and I've definitely done some research, but you know, there were, there were a group of brothers, you know, my dad, his oldest brother who ran the gang, um, and then his other brothers who were out of it. And one of his brothers who, um, went on to do very well in business and, um, his brother refused to let him be part of it. And so I think there's something very interesting in that dynamic that I'm, you know, I'm obviously fascinated by sibling relationships, mm-hmm. but just the idea of like, you know, the good brother, the bad brother, the screw up, like I, I love family dynamic stories. So that's definitely something I've considered. When you so when you're looking at a story like this, are there aspects of it aside from the fact that your personal connection exists uh, to it that would draw you into one medium or another? Like when you look at this story as a whole, do you see it mostly as a novel, or are you thinking more in terms of screenwriting? It's funny because when I think about it, I, you know that's that's actually interesting because that's the thing I'm not quite sure about. I, I love the idea of like TV, and I love kind of like gangster outlaw stories. But I always think about you know if you think about a show like Sons of Anarchy and like you know, like these, these like sweeping shows. And I think if I was going to do it in TV, I'd want to find like a way where it felt completely different as far as like, you know, the world we're going into. Um, and the thing that I, I think that could be interesting in a novel is just exploring the backdrop of Texas and sort of the lawlessness that was that world, but you know, how you get to paint that picture a bit more, um, in a novel and sort of like, you know, maybe the, the longer arc of these characters, you know, over, over a lifetime, like 20 years, what, what their lives look like. So, um, yeah, that's definitely something that I, that I keep coming back to. I think that, I mean, the picture that you start with when in your personal essay of your father at the end of his life, juxtaposed with some of the knowledge of the things that the Overton gang did in the sixties, that, I mean, that picture alone is enough to sell me on a retelling of that story in that Texas era at that time. Like just seeing what the end result of at least one of the members was. I mean, it's also so interesting to look at it, you know, from the lens of, you know, this guy who supposedly did all these terrible things, you know, was also a man that you loved growing up. And, uh, you know, he adopted two twin daughters, you know, so, you know, right off the bat, you know that there is a shred of decency in there. Um, and it seems like he, he kind of struggled with those two parallels of his lives, uh, you know, throughout. Um, and that's something that you do see in a lot of these, you know, the Sons of Anarchy and a lot of these other true crime shows, um, you know, kind of trying to distill the reasons why these people are doing these terrible things, um, you know, while also living these lives. So is that something that you've you know thought about in the past? Yeah, and definitely. And I've, you know, in one version, you know, when I was thinking, you know, long before I had, you know, a list of other stories that I wanted to tell, you know, I definitely thought like through the eyes of a daughter who sees her father or even who's part of it, because I always think like, you know, I was fortunate that, you know, my mother came along and my father tried to sort of, you know, go, you know, go legit. Um, But what that might have looked like if he hadn't. Um, and also what my life and my sister's life might've been like if he hadn't, um, because I think there's, you know, some alternate universe where, um, they are still, he is still sort of that person in that gang or his brother is still running things. So yeah, there's definitely, I think the sort of whatever the family dynamics of that are, I'm, I'm, will one day I'm sure go back to and explore. So when you're, when you're thinking about this story, is there a point when you'll know whether or not you're ready to write it? I think, I think I, it's almost like, I feel like once I've like, um, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I've like, I'm, I keep waiting for a sign. Um, and I always think like, you know, 
when you decide, like when I decided that, you know, baby doll was like, okay, I want to tell this story in this way. I think you sort of just get that emotional, like, you know, that aha moment or that, you know, with baby doll, I had that first line that was sort of like, you know, the first line of the novel, you know? Um, and so I think like, it's that first line or that first character or that first moment. And then I'll be like, okay, now I'm ready to tell it. But I have, uh, I have a list of things that I plan to write in the next year and a half or two years. And, um, and so it's not on it yet. So I definitely feel like it'll be, um, and maybe it'll be, you know, maybe it'll be a story I'll tell when I, once I become a, a, a mom and I have like more, you know, more insight into kind of what his life was like or what, you know, the choices that he made being a parent. What What's on that list of things that you're going to write in the next few years? Um, well, I, uh, that you're believe actually it's my able to talk about third, <laughs> my third book, um, is a, is a story about, um, two homeless women and sort of the bond that they form and a murder that happens. Um, and I really want to, my, uh, my husband works at a tennis club and, um, in Westwood and there's a, there's just a lot of homeless in the city. Um, I'm not sure I'm studying it in LA, but I'm definitely, uh, it's LA or Portland. And so that's a story I want to explore. And, um, and then, uh, um, I'm working on a, a TV pilot, uh, about uh, cop watchers, which is something that's come up a lot lately in the news, but I've had the idea for about a year and a half and I just haven't had time to write it. So that's something I'm very, very fascinated about these people who are just going out, you know, civilians and filming the police every day and sort of the trouble that comes from that. So those are the two things on the, on the agenda. I think those sound awesome. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I can't wait to see, you know, what you do with both of them. Uh, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Holly Overton, H O L L I E O V E R T O N. Uh, they can also, uh, visit my website, www.hollyoverton.com. And, uh, they can sign up for my, uh, mailing list if they want to find out about any upcoming book signings or events or, um, to find out more about my, you know, baby doll and, my next novel, The Walls, which will be out next summer. Cool. Well, Holly, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. I had a great time chatting. Yeah. Us too. That does it for us this week here at Writers Who Don't Write. You can follow us on Twitter, subscribe on iTunes, give us that sweet, sweet five-star rating. Uh, And we have one more favor to ask. If you like the show, if you enjoy it, if you want more of it, tell a friend. And maybe they'll tell another friend. And maybe they'll tell another friend. And in the end, the result is that we get to make more shows. As always, the music you hear at the top and the bottom is Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library. We'd like to thank Holly Overton for joining us this week, despite the craziness and busyness of her schedule. So with that, we'll see you next week. (laughs) 